The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Back in 2001, when I was traveling in the Sinai Desert with some other pastors on this mission trip, uh, our missionary host gave each of us uh, what I consider to be actually a, a rather excessively large bottle of water, uh, one per person, and told us basically to carry it with us everywhere we went and to use it sparingly because we couldn't get any more of it until we reached camp in the evening. And uh, personally, I tend not to drink all that much water uh, compared with other people, and so I thought there was just no way that I would need that much water for just a day trip like that. But I had just absolutely no idea how thirsty I would get walking around in that desert heat all day. And by around noon, I came to the uh, realization that I had drunk most of the water in my bottle. And at that moment, a quiet panic began to set in my heart as I thought about having to go the rest of that afternoon uh, with what little water I had left. And, uh, you know, by the time that I reached camp that evening, I was dry as a bone uh, to the point where, uh, in all honesty, I think I would have drunk from a muddy puddle on the ground if that was the only source of water at that camp. Thankfully, it wasn't, but I think I would have. And so as we begin to talk about this idea of water and thirst, I just want to ask you, do you know thirst like that? I'm talking about toilet water doesn't sound so bad kind of thirst. Maybe you've experienced thirst like that when you've gone hiking all day in the summer heat uh, or playing sports all day without any access to water. Uh, But the truth is that living in America, most of us don't appreciate water very much. We know that we need it to live, but since clean water is always just as close as the nearest faucet, uh, I don't think we think of water as a particularly precious resource. Um, When we lived in Kenya as missionaries, many of our neighbors had to walk miles to get water from a river or a well. And often it was the children that were assigned this task of fetching the water. And the family would have to carefully ration that water so that it would last the entire day to do everything from bathing to cooking to cleaning and drinking. And whenever you visit them, uh, they would always pour a jar of water for you to use to wash your hands before they served a meal. And you realized how precious every drop of that water was that they were pouring for you. You know, Israel and the surrounding nations were filled with desert wilderness where water meant life. In other words, the people of the Bible knew thirst. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere without figuring out where your water source was going to come from, where your water supply would be. One miscalculation of that could mean death for you. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible uses the imagery of water and thirst to point us to a deeper spiritual reality of our spiritual longings that can only be satisfied by God. 
Psalm 42, verse 1 to 2, it says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? The psalmist paints a vivid picture of the longing to be in God's presence like a thirsty deer panting as it desperately seeks water. And so he's saying, when can this happen? Just now is not soon enough. There's this this desperation of saying, when can I go to be in God's presence? Psalm 63 verse 1 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David wrote Psalm 63 when he was living in the desert. And you can imagine how constantly struggling with thirst in this dry wilderness opened up the eyes of David to see how much he needed God to quench a deeper thirst in his heart. To talk about thirst is to talk about desire. The things that we pursue and are devoted to, the choices that we make in our life, all of it is driven by the desires that lie within our hearts. Desire is central to the story of the Bible. We were created by God to worship and desire Him. But we're told that instead of choosing him, we desired other things. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. In the garden, the desire took the form of wisdom. Adam and Eve thought that it would make them the same as God so that they wouldn't have to rely on him anymore as their trust in him began to ebb. And the truth is, that desire can take on so many other forms, but the bottom line is that there are these competing desires in this world and in our hearts that pull us away from our desire for God. Jen Pollock Michelle, in her book, Teach Us to Want, writes, We simply can't ignore desire. Like a heartbeat, desire pulses steadily in the backdrop of our lives. We may not always be aware of the work desire is doing, and yet it provides much of the necessary energy on which we rely We get out of bed, go to work, go go get to the gym, marry or not marry, have babies or not, write books, follow Jesus, because in some measure we want to. Desire is primal. To be human is to want. Every sin is a form of spiritual adultery. And this reveals that desire is at the center of our spiritual formation and transformation. We are not merely cognitive beings whose greatest need is to, be, is to think rightly about God. Change is not determined merely by having the right information. This fails to explain what it means to be human. We orient our lives not according to our belief systems or worldview, but according to our desires. 
Every decision, big and small, is value-driven. And consciously or subconsciously, we are pursuing what we love and value. What she is in essence saying is that at, the, at our very core, in our essence, we are desiring beings. God made us this way, in fact, because he created us to desire him above all things and to worship him alone. It's another way of saying that God made us to be worshipers so that we could worship him. And so alongside these biblical pictures of thirst, we find also these imageries of water. And what we can say is this, if our thirst represents the unquenchable longing in every human heart, then water symbolizes the abundant life of satisfaction that God alone provides. In the description of Eden at the beginning of history, we find these words in Genesis 2, verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. In Eden, in other words, there was this water that gave life to that garden and all of that surrounding land through these four other rivers that flowed from it. And so at the center of paradise is this river of God that gives life to everything that it touches. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in, in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The psalmist pictures life with God as a tree planted by streams of water. And this is such a powerful image because unlike other trees that are so dependent on the rainfall for its survival... This tree is planted right by the source of water so that it is never lacking in that resource. And so as a result, it experiences a life of flourishing and growth, bearing fruit in season and never ever entering into a dry season where its leaves begin to wither. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 47 of that book has this awesome vision of the temple, out of which water is gushing and pouring out. And at first, he sees nothing but a trickle flowing down from the southern side of the temple. But then his guide leads him away from the temple to follow the water course. And at about 500 yards, it becomes ankle deep. Another 500 yards further down, and it becomes knee-deep, and then waist-deep. Eventually, the water becomes so deep that it now becomes a river that is so deep and so vast that he cannot swim across it or cross it. And then Ezekiel 47, verses 7 to 9 and verse 12, uh, he says this, when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, speaking to the guide that was guiding him, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. 
Swarms of living creatures will live where the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And so as this water flows out from the temple, it gives life to everything that it touches, creating a sanctuary teeming with every kind of plant and wildlife imaginable. And there are undeniable echoes of the Garden of Eden in this vision that Ezekiel has. And the message of the vision is that one day God will recover the paradise that was lost through sin, renewing his creation as it once was. In other words, he will restore everything that is broken and heal everything that is sick about the world in which we live. And the way that it will come about is in this form of this living water that will bring about this life and renewal of his creation. And it is this symbolism of thirsting and water in the Old Testament that we need to keep in mind when we read the story of Jesus' encounter with this woman at the well found in John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling in the region of Samaria and he rests by this well while his disciples go into town to buy some food. And there at this well, he meets this Samaritan woman who has come to draw water for herself. And he asks her for a drink. And she is totally caught off guard by this request. There are a number of reasons why this conversation should not take place between Jesus and this woman. Well, first of all, he is a man and she is a woman. And it wasn't really, you know, quite appropriate in that time culturally. He is a Jew, though. And she is a Samaritan, and that's a bigger problem because Jews don't talk with Samaritans. And so she replies in John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She replies in verses 11 to 12, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? You see, the Samaritan woman is totally confused because she thinks that Jesus is still talking about physical water. And so Jesus tells her, verses 13 to 14, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You get a sense that at this point in the conversation, the woman's heart is starting to pound underneath her chest because of what Jesus seems to be offering her. Because Jesus seems to be promising her a perpetual source of water so that she never has to come to this well again because of her thirst. And you can almost hear her desperation 
when she says in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then he drops the bomb on her. In verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I imagine now there's a lump in her throat and her cheeks are feeling really warm. And I think her heart is pounding out of her chest for a completely different reason. Because Jesus presses, uh, and because she says in verse uh, 17, uh, I have no husband, she replied. I have no husband. And technically, that's true. But it is a clear attempt by her to change the subject and avoid the real issue that Jesus is drawing attention to. And so Jesus presses her further. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus has just exposed the source of this woman's greatest shame and brokenness. She has gone through five marriages, and she is now in a relationship with a sixth man who, for whatever reason, she has chosen not to marry, at least at this point in time. Now, let me say this. It may well be that this woman is a woman of loose morals who is, quote, looking for love in all the wrong places, trading one man for another in the hopes of finding something that is still missing in her life. But it is also possible that she is the victim of one man after another who has abandoned her. In fact, I would argue that that scenario may even be more likely since if you understand Jewish marriage laws, the men held almost all of the power in that society. But even if she is the victim in these relationships, the fact that she has gone through five marriages and is now on the, her fifth or sixth man shows that she is still desperately looking for some hope in her life through these relationships. She hasn't given up yet. And it's also clear that the failure of all of these marriages, whether or not she is to blame, is the source of unbelievable shame for her. You know, women in that day went to the well to get water the first thing in the morning so that they could have water for the rest of the day. But it is now the noon hour. And for this Samaritan woman, going to the well was the one errand that she dreaded the most every day. Because for her, it was the walk of shame. By going at noon when no one else would be around, she could avoid the judgmental stares of these other women. And by turning the focus on her relationship with these men, Jesus is in essence asking her, what do you want? What is it that you're still looking for? What is your thirst and the woman is clearly uncomfortable with the direction that this conversation has taken. 
And so she tries once again to redirect the conversation by pointing to the controversy about which mountain that you're supposed to worship on, whether the one that the Samaritans say or the ones that the Jews argue in Jerusalem. Jesus will not be deterred by her attempts to redirect. And so in verse 21 to 24, it says, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is an astounding claim that Jesus is making. By claiming to be able to be the one that could provide this everlasting water to her, he is telling this woman that all of those promises of living water found in the Old Testament were pointing to him. He is saying he is the answer to that river in Eden that was lost. He is the stream in Psalm 1 which allows the tree to bear good fruit. He is the river that is flowing from the temple that Ezekiel saw that gives life to everything that it touches. In other words, he was saying, I am the source of satisfaction for the deepest thirsts in your life. You know, a few chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus explains a little more literally, explicitly, what it means to experience the power of that living water that he came to give us. In John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, it says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this He meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The promise of living water is fulfilled by the giving of God's Spirit to all who put their trust in Jesus. And what the Bible is telling us is it is through that Holy Spirit's work in our hearts that we can experience the true power of a heart that is satisfied of our deepest thirsts in life. There is this dangerous false gospel that is being peddled in our world today, what we often refer to as this health and wealth gospel that proclaims that once we are saved, we can know abundant living Because God is going to shower us with everything we ever wanted. Our heart's desire will be manifest to us. Money, cars, status, relationships, you name it, you claim it, it'll be yours in Jesus Christ. But that is not what the Bible tells us. 
The deepest way that Jesus satisfies our thirst is by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming our thirsts from the things of this world that can never satisfy to our desire for more and more of Him and Him alone. That's why Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. But the Bible tells us without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, that object will never be God himself. Keller is pointing us to the critical role of the Holy Spirit in overcoming our idolatries to redirect the locus of our desire from the things of this world that so easily fail us to Christ and Christ alone who can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. And that's why Paul invites us in his letter to the Galatians to live a life of walking in that spirit so that we can know that abundance and know that joy and that desire of God for us. In Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 16 to 18 and verses 22 to 25, it says, So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that, they are not, they, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Do you see the connection that Paul is making to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life in Psalm 1? Psalm 1 envisions a tree planted by streams of water and out of that bears fruit in its season. And now Paul is saying when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you become a person that bears fruit in your life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit that demonstrates itself in this total reordering of the passions and desires in your life to desire the things of God and not the things of this world. And there is an immediate victory that we know in Christ when we are saved. But that's why Paul says you must walk in step with that Holy Spirit. Because even as we live in that place of being God's children and being followers of Jesus Christ, there is still a sense in which I could resist that work of the Spirit in my life and still be tempted toward the things of this world. In other words, still being pulled by the things of the flesh. And so we're invited to continue to fight against those passions that wage war within our heart, that we could bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let's illustrate that in a couple ways. I've always battled with the security and comforts that money could purchase. It was one of the reasons why, as a young child, I had set it as my goal to become a doctor when I grew up, because... Being a doctor meant being wealthy. 
But you know, um, through the work of God in my life, I was actually able to walk away from a career in medicine and instead choose the pastorate. And it would be so easy for me to say, that's what... That, that's the victory of Christ in me. That's what a great person I am, you know. How, 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 uh, how noble of me, you know, to be able to uh, surrender a career in medicine to become a pastor. But the truth is this. Even though I made that decision in one time in my life, it doesn't mean that I can automatically claim that victory indefinitely. I still see the pull of money in my life all the time and how even in ministry, it is so easy to become so obsessed with that kind of security that money buys. The truth is, there are some things I don't struggle with and I've shared it before in sermons. It's like my clothing, you know. I am not ashamed to admit that 80 to 90% of my wardrobe comes from TJ Maxx, you know. And I, I just, I'm, I, I, I am almost exclusively a shopper of clearance racks, okay? Whatever is out of season, that's great for me. But when it comes to technology, I can't say the same thing. And just a few months ago, um, you know, when I saw the latest iPhone come out, I wanted to upgrade so badly. My iPhone 7 works perfectly fine right now, but it's not an iPhone 12, and then what happened was one day, uh, my iPhone just went black, and I couldn't, get the, I couldn't get the screen back on again. And I thought, awesome, you know? <laughs> it finally died, and I can upgrade. To the, and I, you know, it happened when Betty was there, and I was showing her. I said, I got to upgrade. I'm sorry, you know? Uh, it turned out it was some kind of a glitch. And, I was, and so after doing a hard reset, I was able to get the screen working again. But then there was this moment where I was thinking, Betty doesn't have to know this. And I can upgrade my phone now without her ever knowing the difference. But then I thought, like, this phone works perfectly fine. It does everything I need it to do. There's nothing that it doesn't do that actually bothers me. And yet, why is it that I want to upgrade this phone and spend almost $1,000 to do so? It is just this distorted pull of the world that is constantly telling me I need this to be happy. Let me give you another example of this. In a recent message, I shared about how the image of Jesus uh, that's seared into our heads is, comes more from Hollywood than it does from actual historical evidence. And I apologize that, frankly, even after sharing that with you, most of the slides that I have depicting Jesus, uh, continue to reinforce that Hollywood image of Jesus. And it's because there just aren't a lot of good alternatives, okay? Um, Almost all the images on the internet of Jesus look like that. Uh, Based on archaeological evidence of skulls found uh, in Israel around 2,000 years ago, though, uh, the image that I'm showing you right now is much more likely what Jesus looked like. And I've shown that image before. In fact, Isaiah tells us he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now hold that thought for a minute. Uh, Some of you know that in this past year, I've been watching Korean dramas. Something I've really never done before in my life. And by watching these dramas, I've come to recognize uh, some of Korea's top television and movie uh, stars. And uh, there's this one guy <laughs> named Hyunbin, 
that when I look at his face, I think he looks impossibly handsome, okay? Um, in fact, he is so good-looking that at times it's so distracting, okay? When I'm watching any drama that he's in, I almost become angry <laughs> because I think no guy should be that good-looking, okay? That I can't even focus on the plot. Now, I don't know whether Hyunbin is a believer or not, uh, and whether we'll be together in the new heavens and earth. Uh, but what it means is that Jesus isn't going to be the most handsome guy in heaven. Not even close, okay? It's not even going to be close. Listen, if I were given an option to choose whatever appearance I wanted, to come into this earth, I would choose Hyunbin, okay? I would. But that's not what God did. He chose to look even below average. And what struck me as I was preparing this message is, and that wasn't a temporary situation. He's going to look like that for eternity. He's going to be below the bell curve in terms of appearance. For eternity, there are going to be countless guys that look better than him, more handsome than him in heaven. And I thought about that. Why would God do that? And I thought it's because he's doing that to show us what really matters in life. Because all of these things that we put such esteem on of wealth and status and physical beauty, all of these things that can never truly satisfy, God is trying to show us that is not what the substance of life is about. Through the Holy Spirit, God is training us to be satisfied in him and him alone. And that is the work that the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts is whatever your physical appearance, whatever your salary, whatever your car you drive or the house you live in, to be able to just sit there in the stillness of presence of God and say, I have a king who reigns. I have a shepherd who loves me and gave himself for me. And I have a church that he died for, that has become like a family to me. And in these things, I have more than enough. I am fully satisfied. Streams of living water flow from this heart in a spirit of thankfulness and praise to a God who I cannot stop worshiping and serving. That is a life that you can know when you walk in step with the Spirit. I want to say this. When we say that God can satisfy our deepest longings, I think we have to be very careful about what we mean by that. Because even though we know God, it doesn't mean that our struggles and disappointments magically disappear. And I worry that there are often a lot of false promises made in Scripture. 
uh, in, in the church that are not scripturally supported. You know, uh, Amy Simpson, who wrote this book, Blessed Are the Unsatisfied, I think makes this interesting observation between what she calls a state of dissatisfaction and a state of unsatisfaction. And this is how she distinguishes the two. For dissatisfied people, no amount is enough. No thing is adequate. No person is acceptable. Everything falls short because dissatisfied people either expect too much or simply refuse to be pleased. Their orientation toward the world is either insatiable consumption or a permanent and cynical emotional closure brought on by chronic disappointment. Dissatisfaction is an active, sometimes even purposeful absence, rejection, or refusal of satisfaction in a context where satisfaction is expected. It breeds discontentment, contempt, and a feeling of emptiness, and it is miserable. While dissatisfaction implies either rejection or frustrated pursuits of satisfaction, unsatisfaction is something more like acceptance combined with anticipation. It is acknowledgement of desire without the demand that it be satisfied, a kind of openness that doesn't ask for closure. It is desire that can live with deferral, an embrace of the God-shaped vacuum in us, and a commitment to stop trying to make it full, a healthy hunger that is content to wait for the feast. I really like how Simpson puts it. There's this attitude of dissatisfaction, which is that nothing will ever please me. I am perpetually in a state of discontentment. But even in the Christian life, we can know an emptiness. We can know a hollowness and a pain. But that is, as she describes, an unsatisfaction that approaches God with an open hand and an expectancy to say, one day, one day, my deepest dreams, my greatest longings, will be satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone. This is the promise at the close of the Bible itself. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river or the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to do something a little different. Uh, Before we go into communion, I just want us to actually sing uh, a song before the communion as a response to this message 
of the water of life. And it's an old song uh, called More of You. And I want you to sing this song as a prayer to God. Jesus, I am thirsty. Won't you come and fill me? Earthly things have left me dry. Only you can satisfy. All I want is more of you. Let's uh, invite the work of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And through that work of His Spirit, that He would change our desires from the things that so easily woo us, these cheap substitutes that the world offers that can never satisfy, to turning our focus on Christ, who is the one true uh, source of satisfaction in our world.